Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Zach is a man with the record button, so I guess we're recording now. So Zach, Bill and I actually, had, we had a little sort of uh, uh, conversation about three or four days ago for Bill's, okay. uh, Bill's project. So we just kind of talked. So, but I am really, Bill, I want to just, you know, I'll give you a second to introduce yourself, but I also want to say I'm very excited. This is one of my, uh, you know, whenever we have like an anthropologist on, it's just such fun, fascinating stuff. And it's one of, you know, I, I think our listeners really enjoy it. I know I certainly enjoy it. I think Zach does too. So excited to, to kind of see where the conversation goes, but would you do us a favor and just introduce yourself real quick for the people that haven't, uh, aren't familiar with you? Sure, and uh, and real quick question: the uh, when this airs, is it is it airing the video too, or are you just recording it? it yeah, everything. YouTube, it'll be it'll be audio. It'll be an audio release, and then we'll also uh, put it up on YouTube. So you look beautiful, by the way. So you look. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, no problem at all. Sure, you ready? Yep. Okay. Sure. So uh, my name is Dr. Bill Schindler. I'm a professor of anthropology and archaeology at Washington College, and the director of the Eastern Shore Food Lab. All right. So what? So I know that you have done a lot of field research. I know you. I know you said you spent a lot of time with indigenous populations, and mm-hmm. you're particularly interested in you know how they eat, basically. And uh, uh, where where exactly is Washington uh, University? Because I I I I'm ignorant. I don't know off the top of my head. No problem at all. So we're, it's Washington College, or a small, li- small liberal arts college on the eastern shore of Maryland. So if you look at Maryland and see the Chesapeake Bay, there's a little strip of land between the bay and the ocean, and that's that's where we are. It's actually the only college or university with George Washington's name that he gave his name to. He was actually on our original oh, wow. board of directors. Yeah, it's, it's uh, 1782 we were founded. Well, it must be good if George Washington approves, right? so let let me just uh just kind of get into some stuff so you know we kind of touched on this when i had a a conversation with you but we when we look at uh let's define humans when when did we first become human let's talk about that that's a great question and there's a lot of debate around that certainly but um from from my perspective when we first uh, you know the first member of our genus homo so we're homo sapiens right so the first member of our genus homo Homo habilis uh, appears about two and a half million years ago. And uh, most anthropologists and archaeologists would consider that the beginning of humans, right? So two and a half million years, humans have been on the planet. But uh, modern day Homo sapiens, uh, beings just like us, similar brain size, similar body size, similar male to female body size ratios, right now, we believe begins at about 300,000 years ago. Yeah, that was wasn't that based on some flies? I think in Morocco, I think Morocco, yep, it, used to, yep. it used to be the uh, stuff in the Omo One stuff. I think which was in Ethiopia, if I'm not mistaken. But they had, you know, they they just kind of pushed that back. And I, I see some speculation based on tool technology that there may be even, you know, they could even 
push Homo sapiens back even further. But again, that's, that becomes really, really speculation without the actual fossil records. But well, we have, it, it, and really, the, the fossil record and interpreting it is is really difficult to do. And I and I take my hat off to the people that actually do this because you know often they're left with a tooth or a bit of a cranium and, and trying to make sense of it. And they, and they do a great job. But um, you know, we know that it's, to put all this in some sort of a context, we our ancestors stood upright. Uh, around five to seven million years ago. So if we're looking at, um, you know, upright walking, intelligent beings, we've been on the planet for five to seven million years, somewhere around there. We begin, our ancestors begin to make tools. And we know this for sure at about almost three and a half million years ago. So three, the earliest stone tool found is 3.3 million years. It's a recent find um, in Kenya, just west of Lake Turkana. It's called the Lomekwe tool. And, you know, and if you think about it, and, and I know our conversation, I'll, I'll get to this, but just for the listeners who don't, you know, they think, okay, tools and a bunch of, you know, dumb cavemen running around busting open rocks, you know, think about the power, what happened. And this has a lot of, of um, strong implications for food and diet. Think about what happened on the African savanna three and a half million years ago when we have, you know, our, our australopithecine ancestors withstood, you know, three and a half feet tall, full grown little brains very limited access to resources. The moment when one of them picked up a rock, struck another rock against it and, and, and knocked off a razor sharp flake. At that moment, everything changed. Our relationship with the environment changed. We were no longer limited to these, these nails and these teeth and our muscles to, to interact with our environment and get resources and process them. All of a sudden we had this razor sharp tool that would, that in my, in my mind is the beginning of, you know, interacting with our environment and creating a diet that created us powerful now bill it's you know and, and that's what some people consider like homo habilis was the first tool maker perhaps but there is maybe maybe like you said they talk about oldowan technology which is what they may have had but there's this stuff that even predates that and maybe some of the australopithecines were actually constructing tools potentially but then we know that even uh animals like chimpanzees will actually use they won't create tools but they will use their environment, they'll take, they'll take rocks and smash things, but they're not making the tools. So we know that utilizing tools, other animals do, dolphins do it, octopus, you can do it, crows do it. Uh, but as far as manufacturing tools, I mean, that's, that's kind of the real distinction here, isn't it? Yeah. Manufacturing tools, you know, and also one of the other, we, we, we love to try to separate humans from other animals and we've been trying to do it forever. You know, what makes humans, humans and animals, animals. And almost everything that we come up with, you know, uh, communication skills, using tools, these kind of coming together in groups, all, all these sorts of things are not uniquely human. Other animals do them to some degree as well. Um, and it's true, but even to the point where there's chimpanzees who will pre-plan, there are certain nuts in Africa that are, that are so hard to bust into um, that you, they, they can't get into them without, without tools. And there's no rocks near many of these trees, right? Just where the trees exist. So they will bring rocks in. So they're thinking about it ahead of time to, to pick up rocks where they exist, cart them over, bring them, use them to process and access the food, and then leave them there. So the next year when the nuts are there, they're, they're ready to use them again. I mean, that's, it's not uniquely human that we really even make to some degree tools. What's uniquely human is in general how we approach food. We are the only animals that approach food the way that we do. Um, and we, to, to a high degree, utilize technologies to access resources. And in, in my mind, the most important thing that we do is we create tools 
technologies and behavior patterns to make food safe, nutrient dense, and bioavailable. That's what we've done for three and a half million years. Let's talk about a little bit, uh, you know, because we hear a lot about climate change these days, but let's talk about climate change about three million years ago. Let's, let's talk about what was going on and why, and, and did climate have an implication in human evolution? Oh, there's, there's no doubt, because climate has an impact on resources and then, you know, what drives a lot of our technological change and, and our evolutionary biological changes are what kind of resources do we have access to, what kind of climates are we living in, you know, all of that plays a huge role. So to set the context of what's happening during this really important time of, of, of our evolutionary past, we're in what we call the Pliocene from, you know, it, it, it when we first stand up is the beginning of the Pliocene. And the Pliocene is, uh, you know, in my mind, when I talk to my students, I say, you know, think about Walt Disney Lion King, right? You know, this African savanna, huge expanse of grasslands, which before that, the earth was dominated by really fertile forests for tens of millions of years. And this is a time period during the Miocene, which is, I, I would have let out of order, the, the Miocene epoch, which is before the Pliocene, the earth dominated by fertile forest. And you can just imagine, and not to be sort of stereotypical, but primates are just running rampant. The, the, the number and diversity of primates during this, you know, forest dominated earth is, is, is mind blowing. And then the climate changes and we turn to this sort of savanna grassland Pliocene for several million years. And again, think sort of Lion King, uh, huge, massive animals dominating not only the African plains, but uh, grasslands, but also places like the Americas. I mean, we had everything in the Americas from woolly mammoths and mastodons to saber-toothed cats and giant beaver, all sorts of crazy things, uh, camels, horses. And um, at that time period, though, our ancestors were restricted to Africa. We stood upright at the beginning of the Pliocene. There's some suggestions. This is... Uh, speculation, certainly, that, you know, one of the reasons we stood upright, because we're always trying to explain these things, one of the reasons we stood upright was because we had these tall grasses, and we had to stand up to look over the grasses to either protect ourselves or to to, to look for food or whatever. Um, and then it's, it's during that time period that we first begin to create our first tools. So three and a half million years ago, almost, we create our first stone tools, the Lamequay. Two and a half million years ago with Homo habilis, we create what we call Oldowan technology, about 2 million years ago, huge changes happened. And this is, in my mind, as far as our dietary past is concerned, this is the most significant change. At 2 million years, there's a huge climatic change, right? We now move into the Pleistocene, which is the beginning of the last ice age. Um, so huge transformations in the environment. Uh, our ancestor Homo erectus first appears and a really incredible technology called the Acheulean hand axe first appears at the same time. Some of us, and I'm one of these people, believe also it's the same time period that we first uh, harness fire to the point where we can control it at will, cook with it, use it for defense, use it for hunting, use it for whatever. Um, and it is at that moment at 2 million years that we see the largest transformation in brain size and body size in our entire evolutionary past. What, yeah, let, let's talk about Homo erectus because I think, you know, they, you know, most people understand they were the most successful human ever. I mean, they had the longest run of any human so far. I mean, hopefully Homo sapien will, will match that, but they, I think they were around about 1.8 million years or so, something in that time frame. So when we talk about brain size, uh, where did they start and where did they end up from Homo erectus? How much, how much brain did they pack into the human skull relative to where they started? And what do you think drove that increase in brain size? 
It's a, it's a great question. The cubic centimeters, I, I have to look it up. I can't recall it off the top of my head, but it is, it is an exponential jump. And, I, and I'll say a few things um, about that brain size change, but also what I think drove it. Really cool things about Homo erectus. So I agree that most successful of our ancestral species, period, they were around almost the entirety of 2 million years, like you say, about 1.8 million years. What's also crazy about Homo erectus is they appear in Africa at the beginning of the last ice age and were the first of our ancestors to actually leave Africa and move north, right? I mean, think about how crazy this is. You have um, a species that appears at the beginning of an ice age and leaves equatorial Africa and Eastern Africa and moves up in northern latitudes as the ice age is coming on and inhabits, some stay in Africa, they inhabit Asia and parts of, of, of Europe. So they're in, first of all, even if the uh, environment wasn't changing, they're in tons of different environments with different resources. Now you have this, you know, crazy climatic changes happening at the same time. The diversity of resources that they have to figure out how to deal with and obtain and use is incredible. Um, and what's so significant about them is that they make one tool. I mean, they, they made a couple of other tools, but for the most part, no matter where they were, they made these hand axes. You know, and when I was growing up, my dad had me in the garage and he's like, listen, every tool has a job, right? Every tool has a function. This screwdriver is for screwing in screws. Do not use that screwdriver to open up the paint can. We have a paint can opener for that, right? And, and I was brought up with this mindset. And we, we value ourselves on creating tools specific to jobs. And we think of that as technology and wonderful. But I don't know, in my mind, what Homo erectus did was even more powerful. They made one tool that was so incredible that they could not only survive, but thrive for almost 2 million years in many different parts of the world with changing climatic conditions and support these huge brains and these huge bodies. It's fantastic. So when, one of the things that's um, interesting to consider about Homo erectus is that, uh, and they were one of our really our last species that did this. When Homo erectus first appears, they have a brain size. And I'm, I'm trying to recall exactly the cubic centimeters of their original brain size. But as they're on this planet, right, and as they're having babies and as their population is going different places, their brains are growing, right? It's not a flat Homo erectus had this brain size. Like it starts here and two million years later, it's, it's higher. Homo habilis did the same thing. Australopithecines did the same thing. But Homo sapiens, when we appear, it's like a flat line. Even Neanderthal, same thing. They appear, it's a flat line. In fact, our brains now are slightly, almost statistically irrelevant, but slightly smaller now than they were in, in the past. So, you know, the idea that here you have this species appearing and they're doing whatever they're doing so well that their brains are actually growing while they're on this planet is, is a pretty powerful way to think about it. Here's the major changes for Homo erectus. One is they were our first hunters. So we had meat in our diet. We know now for sure three and a, for three and a half million years. Not only do we find the tools in like the Lamekwe site, but we find butchering sites that date to the same time period. Like in Ethiopia is a great example. Butcher tool, uh, animal bones, fossilized animal bones with, with distinct butchering marks on the bones made by these tools. So we know they're eating meat, but we have no evidence for hunting that long ago. So our also the Pythocene ancestors and our Homo habilis ancestors were scavenging uh, animal carcasses on the African savanna. And when we look at, and, and we use a modern day predators as sort of a corollary for what predators in the past are probably doing. So if you watch a modern day predator, they'll go in, they'll kill something, right? And then they, they gorge themselves on you know, the blood and the organs and you know, the most nutrient and the fat of, of the animal. And then they go off and sleep. 
right? And that leaves a short period of time for humans to run in and grab whatever they can. So they're actually going in and grabbing the leftover meat. And you need tools to actually do this. And when you have tools, you can run in, grab some meat, and then bring it and, you know, leave before the predator comes back and then share that with the elderly and the sick and the young back at wherever you are. At 2 million years, we're hunting, which means we have first access to the animal. So we decide what we want out of that animal. And if you look at indigenous groups around the world who are still hunting, you know, the first things that they eat for several reasons are, you know, those amazing parts of the animal. And sometimes they even would leave some of it behind. If they're, if they're short on time, they leave meat. They don't leave the, the rest of it. So that's a huge difference. So Homo erectus is our first hunter. The other thing that's different about Homo erectus is they also probably have fire. Now, the earliest direct evidence for fire is around a million years, but there are some, you know, incredible minds in the anthropological community, people like Richard Wrangham, for example, from Harvard, who um, are suggesting that in order to be to the point where we were a million years ago, we had to have formed a relationship with fire, you know, much, much earlier. Francis Burton is another one who suggests this. So, you know, humans, most animals are deathly afraid of fire. I mean, think about that change to go from being deathly afraid of fire to, you know, coming cl in close contact with it and learning how to deal with it, then learning how to harness it, then learning how to use it for your own purposes and start it and put it out at will. That's, that's something that doesn't happen in, in a short period of time. So the thinking is we were forming a relationship with fire for literally millions of years before we got to the point where we could actually harness it and use it. And, you know, I, I'm one of those people that believe that we were, we were doing that, but at, at 2 million years, we had full access to fire. And one reason I believe that is because I don't think Homo erectus could have left Africa at the beginning of the Ice Age and gone into Europe and Asia and survived both, you know, to, you know they, had to, they had to control their microclimates, so they didn't freeze to death, but also in order to get what they needed from these resources, they had, they had to have access to fire. So they were cooking and they were hunting. Those, that, that was the biggest change for Homo erectus. Yeah, I mean, Phil, that, Bill, that's fascinating. You know, I think there's many people that, that seem to think fire was, you know, like a four, you know, cooking with fire was maybe a 400,000 year old uh, sort of phenomenon, but certainly, I mean, that makes sense with the, with the cold climate, you know, obviously they would have harnessed animal furs and they would have been building, you know, uh, shelters and, and whatnot, I would assume, or maybe, I don't know if there's evidence of that, but what, um, you know, what is the, uh, you know, the, the, I think the fire thing is very, very interesting. Why do you think that fire, did fire and cooking have a role in brain development? I know there's some people think that cooking was, was what drove human brain development, whether it's cooking starch in meat and, and so on and so forth, making calories more available. Why do you think uh, that had a role for Homo erectus? I think there's a couple things. So fire, and when we think about fire, and this is one of the, you know, you know my work is, uh, I, I'm by training a, a prehistoric archaeologist and experimental archaeologist. So I've been trained in, in replicating uh, ancient technologies to, in, and reproducing them and learning how to use them. So when we have questions about the archaeological record, you know, people come to me and say, okay, can you replicate this stone tool? And then we'll use it, you know, so see how it's made. And then we'll see how it's used and how efficient it is and what it's used for. So, uh, you know, I work in stone tools and prehistoric ceramics and hides and, and, and fibers and these sorts of things. And, and that's really where this, this kind of, um, when I realized years ago that almost every single prehistoric technology has something to do with food, I, I you know, I, I really 
found my niche and, and, and started moving in that direction. So with fire, one of the things that we need to think about is that fire doesn't, we don't use fire just for cooking, right, in the past. We use it, and there were tons, tons of biological and physical changes that happen in response to having access to fire. So the first thing that happens is when we have access to fire, uh, we don't, or we aren't restricted to daylight. To, to do work and to do things and to move about and to hunt and to process materials and to process food and whatever we're doing. So all of a sudden we, we now can extend our day as long as we want and do all sorts of things, which have not only, uh, you know, ramifications for what we can accomplish, but it, it changes our circadian rhythm. It changes our uh, biological responses and serotonin release. And some people suggest that, you know, the sort of waves that are light waves that are emitted from fire um, uh, mimic what twilight, the, the, uh, you know, what's released during twilight, and it changes all sorts of biological things. And the fact that humans can reproduce every month in some form is a response to fire. So there's a lot of biological changes happening. We're processing all sorts of materials, creating mastics and glues and things that help us hunt. Uh, we're processing materials to do other sorts of things. We're processing food, but we're also processing, when, we're pro when we talk about plants in our diets, one of the things we need to consider, and I know this is, is, a, um, is something that a lot of people in the community are talking about right now, and it's a very important thing to consider. Animals, and I truly believe animals can uh, hurt us or kill us when they're alive, and plants can hurt us and, or kill us when they're dead, right? So once we've killed an animal, we have you know, incredible access to all sorts of nutrients in a very, very safe manner, unless we do something wrong and we let something go bad, right? But we have direct access to great nutrients. Uh, we need the technology to get that animal, but once we have harvested that animal, other than a sharp edge, we have access to incredible nutrients. Plants are a completely different thing, especially wild plants. So when we, when our listeners, when your listeners are thinking about, you know, what is it like in the past when humans are eating vegetables, they should not think about going to Acme or ShopRite because, you know, those, even those plants, many of them are very dangerous to us, but wild plants are inherently incredibly dangerous because of all the phytochemicals and allelochemicals and phyto all the things that they have to protect themselves chemically. And there are several ways to detoxify these plants. And one of them is through fire. Hey, Bill, I want to ask you, this is a question that we, you know, some people in the, in, in the community that I kind of participate in kind of kicked around. It's like, you know, harnessing fire uh, would have required some level of intelligence. So did we have to have you know, just that initial bump of maybe scavenging animals, you know, that caloric bump, that nutrient bump, drive enough brain growth to where we can now, you know, kind of say, hey, we can, we're smart enough to, to figure out this fire thing, you know, because it's kind of, you kind of wonder, because it probably took some a level of intelligence to, to, to be able to, to harness fire. Do you see any evidence that that's true? That's a great question. So, you know, <sighs> I'm sure that played a role in it. So the, the, the influx of incredible calories and great nutrition from scavenging animals certainly played a role in a lot of different things, right? It probably freed up a little time that we would have normally spent gathering insects or gathering plants. Um, it probably gave us a boost in a lot of ways to start thinking outside of the box. And I'm sure in some ways led to, led to the uh, control and, and harnessing of fire. Um, I do believe it's also one of these things where you know, this long relationship, you know, this is the model that's usually put out there, you know, millions of years ago, you know, three, four, five million years ago, you know, we might have, our ancestors might have seen, started to see the benefits of fire, you know, lightning strikes, something's burning, you run, and all of a sudden a fire has swept through a grassland 
killed animals, insects that were in there. And all of a sudden you're smelling cooked meat. You're seeing a whole bunch of, because there are a lot of insects that are, um, uh, I forget the word that are, but they're drawn to fire, right? And, and they'll die in a fire as well. So you have all these insects, which were definitely in our diets at the time, cooked meat, which has an aroma that you know that we're just drawn to anyhow. And slowly over time, we started to see that there was this, this, this thing in nature that was giving us food and food that we really enjoyed and food that really helped us feel really good. And over a lot of time, we got closer and closer and closer. And then maybe we started finding that if we, you know, it would die out when it didn't have any more grass or wood to burn. And we knew we could put some on there and keep it going and then eventually figured out how to do it. But the other, um, the other thing that I think is, is, um, is really important to think about is food. I, I did a, a television program in Ireland a couple of years ago, and the host asked me this question, and it got me thinking about it. He says, so did eating better food increase our brain size or eating more calories increase our brain size? Like, and, I'm, and I said, well, yes. And then he said, well, what if we fed a whole bunch of you know, this food to a chimpanzee, what would you get? And I said, you'd get a fat chimpanzee. Like, <laughs> I think there's two things to think about. And, and it, we, our, our diet and our dietary change and our ability to access incredible nutrients supported our body and brain growth. But there was something else going on that initiated it or fuel or, 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 or pushed it to happen. I mean, there's all kinds of thoughts. I mean, some people believe it's hallucinogenic drugs that got us thinking outside of the box. Some people believe that, you know, as we increase one of the most brain taxing activities for humans is creating and maintaining social relationships. So, you know, maybe it was an indirect thing as we had access to more food and our group sizes uh, got bigger you know, we had to, to push and push and push our brains and use more of them to create and maintain more social relationships and keep the group going. And, and that actually pushed our brains to get bigger as our diets were supporting this growth. So I think there's two things happening at the same time, both probably in some way food, you know, related, but they're two, I think they're two, we have to think along both of those lines at the same time. Bill, do we know, like, along the lines of fire, do we know when, when humans were, went from, like, just taking advantage of, like, a naturally forming fire versus learning how to kind of create it on their own? No, because we're still, we are still arguing about when we even had fire. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and again, a lot, of, a lot of archaeologists will say, we only have direct evidence for this at this point, so it must not have happened beforehand, or we're not even going to suggest it did beforehand until. And I think a lot of the archaeologists who also have their hands in, in doing, in, in, you know, in making fire and, 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 and hunting and doing these sorts of things, realize that none of these things are overnight. There's a long, long lead up to be able to do it. So Francis Burton uh, wrote an incredible book where she's talking about the role of fire in the past. And she's the one that lays out this timeline that says, you know, she, I, I forget the exact dates, but something like five or 6 million years ago, we started getting closer to fire, formed a relationship for millions of years and probably around 2 million years had control of it. Hey, Bill, let's talk a little bit about the transition into homo sapien, because, you know, we talk about maybe this, you know, 2 million years Pleistocene, you know, dramatic change in the climate, you know, and, and this is a thing that people sort of think that humans evolved in, in the tropics. Well, really the tropics went away because it's really, we evolved in these savannas and grasslands. And so, but what was, what, what do we have an idea? What 
you know, environmentally may have driven Homo sapiens or Homo erectus, the demise of Homo erectus, and then the evolution and the emergence of, uh, you know, early Homo sapiens. Well, you know, and again, I, and I wish I had really easy answers for you, but all, all of it's complicated. All of it has a lot of factors. One thing, um, you know, in a simplified version of our human evolutionary past, we do something like, and this is usually how I, I teach it, you know, if I'm, I'm, I'm just teaching a single lesson on it, you know, also the Pythocines and lead to Homo habilis, the Homo erectus, the Homo sapiens, and then we kind of move on. But that's a picture that's not entirely accurate. First of all, none of those were the direct ancestor to the other. Right. It's much more it's, it's like this confusing evolutionary bush, not a, even a tree. So between Homo erectus and Homo sapiens, there's a lot of different things like Homo ergaster, Homo heidelbergensis, a bunch of different, you know, a bunch of different species that what's really interesting is that up until it's debated about 30,000 years ago, give or take several thousand years, there were numerous upright walking, intelligent tool making members of the genus Homo on the earth at the same time, coming in contact with one another, killing one another, having sex with one another, in some cases having babies with one another. So there was an overlap between Homo erectus, Homo sapiens, Neanderthals, Homo floresiensis, and several other ones that are all on the planet at the same time. The fact that we're the only ones on the planet today is a really unique thing and really new. So um, the other thing to think about, and we, we also simplify the geologic epics too much too, and, and let me just shed some light on the Pleistocene. So the Pleistocene begins around 2 million years ago, just a little bit more recent than that, and exists all the way up until about 12,000 years ago or so. And then we move into what we call as the Holocene, which is what we're, most of us believe we're currently in now. But if we stop there and say, okay, there was an ice age for 2 million years, and then all of a sudden we're in this, um, we get a really, really screwed up picture that doesn't allow us to think, to, to really fully understand or grasp the past. That 2 million years had a whole bunch of what we call interglacial periods in it. So we had periods of time that were thousands, if not tens of thousands of years that had a climate very similar to what we have now. So you had ice age, and then it got warm and dry, and then it got ice age, and then it got warm and wet, and we had ice age, and kind of this fluctuating thing for 2 million years which leads many people to suggest that we're actually still in the ice age, that what we've been experiencing for the past 12,000 years is, is, is one of these interglacials and we're going to revert back. Um, and there's a bunch of other theories as well. So I say that because at the time period when Homo sapiens first appear, there's a lot of different changes, changes going on. And we, we, we did think it was happening in Eastern Africa. Now we think it's the first Homo sapiens are appearing in Morocco. And I'm sure we're going to find something even a little bit earlier then. Um, I don't have uh, a concrete example of why, but what I can say is the technological changes that were happening, you know, in the past several hundred thousand years were becoming more and more and more rapid, more and more and more advanced. There was a lot of people that were now, a lot of our ancestors were now going into environments that they didn't have access to before because they couldn't access the resources there because our bodies, after all, we are one of the weakest species on the planet. Like pound for pound, other animals, you know, we're not that fast. We're not that strong. We can't jump that high. We can't fly. We can't swim very fast. We can't even dig in the ground. So in order to get resources and live in different environments, we need to create tools and technologies and behaviors to do it. So, you know, we start to see several hundred thousand years ago, this huge expanse of technologies and ways of approaching environments that create all sorts of different changes. And it was within that context that Homo sapiens appear. 
Now, a great question is, okay, Homo sapiens appeared 300,000 years ago. How come beginning, you know, there's a range, 25 to 35,000 years ago, whatever that is, how come we're the only ones left since then? What happened then that made it so that we're the only species left? Now, that's a huge question that we're trying to answer. Some people suggest that, you know, this sort of um, uh, species-centric idea suggests that we killed everybody else off, that we were so good at what we did, we could kill everybody else off. Some people suggest we just outcompeted others for resources. Some people take this approach that we were just incredible lovers and literally drown the gene pools out with our own genes. And there's a little bit of evidence of, of that because we do have, you know, Neanderthal and other species DNA still in our DNA in modern populations, right? So a lot of different things were happening. But what I can say is for the past few tens of thousands of years, there was strains on the environment and we adapted in many different ways. And one of the things we did was we hunted animals to extinction, right? I mean, we, in, in, no matter where we went, we killed off huge megafauna. Uh, we also, we killed them off in several ways. We also killed off other species of, of genus Homo as well. And then, you know, and we obviously diversified and did a bunch of other things. So I don't have a direct answer to that question, but it is a very complicated answer. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage-breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. Yeah, and I certainly don't didn't want to imply that it was Homo erectus to Homo sapien. I'm, you know, I'm well aware of the the myriads of you know migrations back and forth, and you know the the, the interbreeding between us and Neanderthal and the Denisovians and, and so on and so forth. Let me ask you because this is a very important point. You talk about the megafauna. There's a gal by the name of uh, Professor Felisa Smith at UNM University of New Mexico, who looked at, basically did a study. It was kind of interesting. I think she published it in maybe 2018, 2017, looking at you know just estimating the land mammal mass, you know, like we would take the average animal of, mm -hmm. you know, beginning of, you know, maybe 125,000 years ago, we would say that the average animal, you know, representative animal would weigh about 500 kilograms. And we compare that with the average land mammal today or animal today. And we come up with something around seven to nine kilograms. And so we had this massive quantity mm -hmm. of, you know, megafauna, you know, everywhere. And there's some people suggested that Homo erectus particularly was pretty damn adept at killing these things. I mean, they figured it out. They had the technology. They basically, to quote one paper, they said they did it basically at will. And so they basically, you know, they weren't hard to find. I've been to Africa. I mean, I'm sure you've been to different parts of the world. Elephants don't really run away from you. They don't run away from humans. And, you know, and, and what we see is, you know, maybe early on in the African savannas, you know, the elephants kind of lasted longer because they kind of co-evolved with some of the early human, human species and human, you know, hominids, 
But as humans like Homo erectus kind of left and went into Europe and Asia, those uh, those elephants and, and mastodons were, were completely unprepared. They just had no, no idea. And so it was kind of like, you know, shooting fish in a barrel, so to speak. That At least there's some thought that that may have gone on. And now we want to contrast that. And I know you do a lot of work with modern indigenous tribes, and it's very much a different sort of scenario. Most of the indigenous tribes now are kind of pushed back into the undesirable places in the world because, you know, we've taken all the the, the coastlands and all the nice prime spots and so now we've got these pockets of indigenous people that are living basically subsistence you know and so it's a different relation but let's let's do you find that there's any there's any sort of uh, good evidence to suggest that humans had good access to megafaunal animals uh going back however far you want to go back oh absolutely so uh, you know we know for sure homo erectus were killing animal or elephant sized elephants and elephant sized animals with the most basic of technologies right and then we even see more recently, you know, like the Schoningen spears in, in Germany, these gorgeous bi-pointed, you know, wooden spears that were used. We know for sure they were used for killing horses. They actually found, you know, butchered horse remains with holes in the scapula from these spears. And that was like several hundred thousand years ago. We know this has been going on for a while. And where we see humans go, the megafauna, you know, are, are, get completely destroyed. We see it happen in Australia. We see it happen all over in Asia. And then we see it most recently in the Americas where when humans, when humans begin hunting them in, in the Americas, they completely, well, you know, what's very interesting and you alluded to this, the megafauna, not all the megafauna go away, right? So we have like moose and elk and deer and things that's, which are considered megafauna. They're not the size of mastodons, but they are considered still in the category of megafauna. They, they survived, um, this kind of you know megafaunal extinction. What's interesting is that the animals that survived the megafaunal extinction in the Americas have ancestors that came from Asia. So the thing some people believe that you know they were able to figure out how to survive alongside of these hunting humans, while the animals that were completely unprepared were the ones that got destroyed and the huge ones. Um, and you know, there's a huge debate, as you know, in this in this world. There's a lot of archaeologists that don't believe this, of this overkill hypothesis that humans killed all these animals. In fact, there's still some who don't believe we had the ability to kill them at all. Uh, and, and and you know, and, and there's some in between that suggest, okay, you know, there humans, you know, somebody would have killed, uh, done everything they could. They killed, you know, one woolly mammoth and talked about it for their entire life. You know, none of that. There's no way that's true. I will say that I do think there were a lot of factors that were involved in their extinction. I don't think it was just human predation, although I'm confident we were hunting them and hunting them well. But um, there's some suggestions that there was a transfer of disease from, from humans when they come in. There's, uh, there's huge environmental change and limited resources for the animals. So the, there's sure a lot of things led to their actual extinction. But we were hunting them and we were well equipped to do so. So modern, as far as the modern day uh, homo sapiens, and the modern day groups that I work with are concerned, 100% right. I mean, all of these groups, there's so much information we can take from them because they still do some really wonderful things uh, with their food and with their environment. And a lot of these things span, you know, very ancestral in, um, in nature. But we can't, it's not a one-to-one -one correlate because they have been pushed to some of the worst land. They are confined and hamstringed by modern laws that don't allow for them to do a lot of, we see it in the Americas and we see it in Africa, we see it all over the world. You know, we've, we've taken the best land for agriculture. We've taken the best land for cities. 
and push these people out and say, okay, survive, but you're only allowed to do these things, right? So it's really difficult. But the, the groups that I've been with, when we've harvested an animal, whether, you know, we, we, we harvested a genet cat in, um, in, in uh, Tanzania with, with the Hadza, and I was, you know, with Mongolian herders uh, in, in Northern Mongolia with a yak, or I actually just came from Peru and we, we, we a guinea pig. They use every, as you know, every part of this animal. In fact, um, when I was just in Peru, I said, okay, I want to go through the whole process with you. I was with a Quechua family in, in the Andes. This was about two months ago. And I said, I want to go through the whole thing. Like, I want to see exactly how you deal with this animal. And I have never, and I pride myself on eating nose to tail completely. I have never eaten so much of one animal as we did with that guinea pig. The only thing we didn't eat was the hair, the gallbladder, and the feces. We actually were popping the feces out of the intestines before we cooked it. It was fantastic. Yeah, I've, I've had cooey. I've had cooey when I was in Peru. I mean, it's quite, it was good though, right? Yeah, I mean, they, they serve it kind of funny. It's just all, you know, laying there. They usually have some potatoes and it's laying in there. You look at it, it's kind of a little bit dis disconcerting when you first look at it. But yeah, that's, that's kind of interesting. But um, I think that, you know, so it's probably fair to say that, the, you know, the eater and eating patterns of, of modern indigenous tribes are not necessarily reflective of what, what we would have had access to. And, and, and I know you alluded to this, but I mean, there's pretty good archaeological evidence that, you know, maybe homo sapien brain capacity maybe peaked 100,000 years ago, 125,000 years ago. And then as that megafaunal die off, and there, there's some evidence that maybe people think that the fire stick burning uh, of, of agriculture, all, you know, excel, you know, there was a lot of things like you talk about, but there's a lot of it was human intervention or human activities that led to these, these animal dive. And I know there's some people that think it's some asteroid that collided and caused a North American megafaunal die off. And I think that's, but it doesn't show up in the rest of the world. And so even if you were to accept that, 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 that hypothesis, but we see that, uh, you know, at least my understanding is we see a significant decrease in robustness in a number of different ways in the human skeleton and human fossil records. Once we sort of went to this, we, we went away from this hunting or hunting gathering lifestyle into a more of an, uh, of an agricultural based uh, lifestyle. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. And, and, I'll, and I'll start with a, a lesson that I learned. One of my first classes in graduate school was a human osteology class. So human, human bone class. And I knew nothing about it. Right. I, so I walk into this class, had no information on human bones. That In fact, I was so naive that the very first class they asked about how do you tell the difference between humans and females, by look, or males and females by looking at the skeletons. And I actually, and I'll admit to this, I actually raised my hand and said the number of ribs. But anyhow, um, I got laughed, laughed out of the room. But um, about a week later in that first, in that class, we, uh, the professor, well, we had learned nothing about bones yet. And he, and he has in the middle of the room, two skeletons and they both came from um, the same site in Pennsylvania. They were both native American, but they were different ages by several thousand years. And one of the skeletons was uh, a hunter gatherer, pre-agriculture native American. And the other was an early agriculture, you know, when, when agriculture first comes in into the area. So still prehistoric, still pre-European colonization, but you know, a, a, a native American that was farming and, he said, can you tell me which one's which? And remember, I had no training in this whatsoever. And they were night and day. I mean, night and day. The hunter-gatherers, and some people would suggest this is sort of anecdotal, but it's not. I mean, it was right in front of me. This is, you know, this robust skeleton with a mouth. And, and they were similar age, by the way. They were both males, and they were very similar. Um, they were, like, in their mid to late 30s. Um, the the uh, 
hunter-gatherer, robust, had all of its teeth. There was no signs of disease in the bones. And then the early, you know, the, the agricultural skeleton had, the teeth were liter literally falling out of their skull. They were worn down to the nerve. And you, you could just see, I didn't know what diseases they were in the bones, but you could just see that the bones were riddled with disease. And that impression will never, will never leave me. So yeah, huge difference. When, when we, you know, farming, as, as many people know, is, creates one of the most fragile resource bases in the world. So even if the food was good, even if what you were pulling out of those fields was something that humans should be eating, it's still a fragile resource base and fails all the time, right? So, you know, what, what you see and what we see in the bones quite often archaeologically, when we, when, when we see agriculture come into areas, especially when they're still trying to figure it out, we see several things in the bones. One is disease. One is um, uh, bones that are a lot less robust, bodies that are less tall. Um, we see ages decline rapidly in, in populations, but we also see Harris lines in the bones and um, uh, um, uh, 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 enamel hypoplasia on the teeth. So in both of those cases, when the bones are the growth plates of the bones and, and the areas when the, when the teeth are, adult teeth are still in the mouth before they erupt, but you're still laying on layers of enamel, if there is a interruption in growth because of either um, uh, disease or uh, nutrition, it, it interrupts it and it leaves a scar in the bones and the teeth. And we see this in these populations over and over and over again. So at, at every point, yes, we see it in the archaeological record. Hey, Bill, let me just, uh, this is another uh, thing that often comes up and I think it's a misconception, but uh, let's talk about lifespan because most people say, well, you know, prehistoric man, they only lived to 25, 30, and they sort of forget to, to include the infant mortality data on the population averages there. So do we have evidence perhaps that maybe they weren't all dying at 25 years of age? Oh, certainly they weren't dying at 25 years of age. And, and it's something I've heard you and a lot of others speak about, and it's in the anthropological literature as well. As, as everyone, or hope everyone knows, surviving, humans, when, when we stand upright, we five, six, seven million years ago, we gave up a lot. Like becoming human was a very difficult thing to do with a whole bunch of different trade-offs. And one of the things, one of the, the, the bad things, you know, negative things about being human, which doesn't affect any of the three of us, well, at least directly, is we have the most painful and dangerous childbirth of any animal on the planet. And one of the things that we had to do in order to, you know, and, and we're, we're literally through evolutionary forces, we are right at that sweet spot to produce a baby with the largest head possible while still allowing the mother to survive childbirth, right? Or they're both to survive childbirth. So what we've done, what evolution has done is allowed a lot of the growing of the human brain and body in, in, to happen outside of the body, right? Because if we allowed for the maturity of, of a human fetus to happen inside the mother the way it does in other animals, they would, we, 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 a mother wouldn't be able to push the baby out, right? Just too big. So if you look at a horse, if you ever saw, um, the first time I ever saw a horse born, I was amazed. A horse comes out, we stand there, and the farmer said, you know what? If that horse doesn't stand up in, in 45 minutes, we're calling the vet. What do you mean it's going to stand up in 45 minutes? And the thing stood up in like 25 minutes. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, a human baby, we wait, what, eight, nine, whatever months for it. So that what we've done is we've created babies. In order to become human, in order to create bodies and brains this big, the trade-off was we're pushing out babies that are still growing outside of the body the way they normally would have been growing inside of the body. So we have a period of time that's very – we give birth to useless babies baby humans. That's what we do. They can't defend themselves. 
So through culture and through, you know, behavioral changes, we, we protect that baby to get to the point where it can fend for itself. But, you know, we're talking years compared to days or months that other animals would, would do. So it's very dangerous for a human baby in this world, especially the world in the past. A lot of infant mortality. And, you know, it isn't. So if you, if you take that an average lifespan for a human, if we say, what is an average lifespan? Maybe it is in the past 25, 30, whatever years. But that it's skewed. Right? That, that it's, it's a meaningless calculation. If we say, if you survive to a certain age, if you survive childhood to you, where you can fend for yourself, then what is the average lifespan? We're talking, you know, a really nice lifespan, high 60s, 70s, you know, and we certainly have even outliers that are close to what we have today. So right there, that calculation is important. And one quick aside, which I think is really interesting. We think about the, the, if we have conversations about a human biological evolution, you can't just have that conversation without talking about diet, without talking about environment, without talking about technology, but also without talking about culture. And here's a, here's a great example, and this speaks directly to the babies um, and how, you, how defenseless they are. Humans are one of the, human females are one of the only, you know, spe females of our species are the only species, we're the only species that have females that live past menopause. I mean, think about it, why? I mean, there must have been evolutionary forces that produced this. And the thinking is the role of the grandmother, the role of the grandmother in, in, in freeing up a mother to help with the other things that, that are, that are um, you know, societies in the past needed, uh, but still caring for that child. You know, groups that did that had more babies, had more successful babies. And those are the ones that, you know, their genes went into the gene pool and it increased and increased. And it was, it's very interesting to, to consider this. You know, the other interesting thing I find about kind of what you're talking about there too, is just how long it takes the human brain to fully develop once you are given birth. Like, isn't it like 25 years before your brain is actually fully developed? So like, when you think about it that way, like if you, if, if we had a lifespan of 25 to 35 years, like yeah. how useful would it be to have a brain development timeline that was basically right up until our death points? Like you wouldn't even be able to fully utilize your brain until you were gone. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, if you even look at, you know, our, our, um, our cranium, you know, we, we, you can age skeletons by looking at different markers, you know, what, what, which teeth they have and when they erupted and uh, all sorts of different things. But one of the ways that we figure out the age of, of a human skeleton is by looking at when the, uh, the cranium fully closes, right? The, the sutures there. And they don't close until the mid thirties. I mean, your, 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 our craniums don't even complete, the bone doesn't completely fuse until the mid thirties, which is, you know, again, one other thing to suggest that what is this? We're, we're dying before we've even finished forming. It's, it's ridiculous. So, and the other, and I know we've, you've all, you've talked about this and, and, and we all have at some level, but the other thing to consider when we, and I, it, I talk about this all the time with my students I say, okay, we live longer now than we ever have. Well, define what living means. I, I, I said, we, we die longer. It takes us longer to die <laughs> it does, than it did for our ancestors. You know, our ancestors, and, and this is the way I really think about it, and not to fan, you know, to, uh, you know, you've read the book Paleo Fantasy, and we, we sort of talk a lot about highlighting wonderful things in the past. And obviously everything in the past wasn't amazing, but I think they had it figured out a lot better than we did. But the idea that, you know, 
they lived up until the moment that they died. I mean, that is the way I want to go. I want to, whether it's 60, 65, 85, 90 years old, I want to live and have lived my best life until that moment and die. I don't want to spend the last third of my life sitting, you know, in a hospital bed somewhere on dialysis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's that quality versus like just the lifespan, I guess. But, you know, I do, I do want to hop back real quick to when we were talking about the, the megafauna, specifically like the mastodons and things like that. And sure. we touched on this a bit when we had Mickey Bendor on the, on the podcast a while back. And the thing that was intriguing to me when I was learning more about kind of just the hunting of mastodons and these large woolly mammoths and things is, and that's a huge amount of meat and resources and when we think of like food nowadays, we think of it as incredibly perishable. Like, you know, you put something in the fridge for too long and it goes bad. So the question, I guess, is just like, and I guess there's maybe a few questions, so I'll try to make it make sense. But uh, the way I think about it is like, if you're killing something that big, you're either finding a way to preserve it um, or you have such a big group of people that you're eating it quick enough before it can go to a point where it's no longer usable, you know, or our digestive systems are, are better at kind of like, I guess the scavenging side of things comes into the equation there. But like, if we did have a situation where like the, we have access to these mastodons, it, you kill them, hunt them. And then we have these larger groups that are feeding off this big amount of resources is there anything like, then we have those big groups that ties into that cultural aspect, like that relationship where we're needing to be able to process and keep track of a larger group of people. So it could have almost be like this parallel thing where we have the access to resources, but we also have access to way more people in our tribes or our groups, which could be kind of dually stimulating brain growth. Sure. Absolutely. So a couple of things I think are really important here to sort of set at least and remember, what I'm, what I'm relaying here is how I picture the past, sure. and it may or may not be accurate. Um, so uh, the first thing I'd like to and sort of get this out of the way, we shouldn't have this idea, in my mind, of the past as this amazing, uh, you know, sort of harmonious kumbaya, we're sitting there, you know, dancing and, 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 and with flower things on our head or whatever, relationship with the environment. It wasn't as purposeful of that. However, there were things that limited some of it that allowed it to be a much more sustainable um, interaction between humans and the environment than anything we're doing now. But I will say that there were a, a lot of human predation was very, very wasteful. Uh, for example, and we see it here in North America, so these buffalo jumps where one of the mm-hmm. methods of hunting is to drive you know, enormous masses of buffalo over the edge of a cliff. And, and dry, and we, we see them in different places. And that's a great way to get a lot of meat. The problem is, you know, one thing, it's one thing to get a resource, and it's another thing to do something with that resource before it goes bad, right? And, and that's really the limiting factor for how much of what you have actually turns into usable nutrition. So some of these buffalo jumps we see in the archaeological record killed an enormous amount of animals, but they were only able to access some of those animals, and some of them they were never able to access the nutrition from. So, but that aside, what they could do was absolutely fantastic. So yeah, they were definitely preserving things. You know, one of the, um, and you can preserve most of the parts of the animal in, in, in different ways. And the parts you can't are usually the parts that you eat first. So it's very difficult to store organ meats without freezing them, right? Um, so that's, that was organ meats and blood and those sorts of things were usually eaten first. 
And then, and we see this still happening in groups around the world today. And then you have the meat. The meat and the fat is very easy to store. That's very, all you have to do, even in the absence of salt. So one of the things I was doing with the Hadza, when we had access to a large animal, they literally unrolled it. They took knives and they peeled it about, they actually, in some cases, were up to a half an inch thick in huge ribbons and laid them on top of the bushes. And, and they said, all they need to do is dry the sort of outside third of this and it'll store for several weeks and they can have access to it. And it kind of preserves the middle. Um, when I was in Bolivia a couple of weeks ago, we were up in the Altiplano and it's the area where jerky was first invented, right? It was called charque in, in, in South America. So I was with a, a, an Aymara family and I said, I want to make, I want to make jerky with you. And I sort of thought I knew how they, how they did it. Um, but one of the things that they did is very relevant to this conversation. Um, uh, blew my mind. So we killed, we made it out of a lamb. We killed the lamb. We skinned the lamb. We took the organs out, which we use for other things. And then they we took the animal apart in really four, four, oh, excuse me, four main pieces, right? And like we quartered it. So we had a whole shoulder, a whole leg, all of it was there. And then we, I'm sorry, six pieces, because we had the ribs. And then the, the woman who I was working with, the daughter of the family, same thing. She peeled all the skin off very carefully in about a quarter inch thick to make sort of this, this kite-like shape, right? Very thin, increase the surface area. But all the bones were still attached, and I'm thinking, when's she going to get rid of the bones? Because I'm thinking they were just going to hang jerky like we do. Right? And then she had brought a big rock out and put the meat and the, and the bones on top of the rock, grabbed another rock, and smashed the bones. Just smashed them. Every single bone, whether it was a rib or a, a, you know, a leg bone, whatever it was, got smashed at least once. And I asked her what she was doing. Now, it was a little bit difficult because they spoke Aymara and I was getting it translated to Spanish. So, and my Spanish is okay. So it took a little while, but I finally found out that what they do is they don't eat, they've never in their lives eaten jerky. And I brought some jerky I made with them because I was hoping we'd do this and we'd share it and all this. And they saw me eating it. And they're looking at me like I was, you know, this crazy person. Said, you don't eat this. You don't just eat it. And so what do you do with it? So we make soap, uh, soup out of it. So, oh, so they, the reason that they crush the bones is to expose the marrow so the marrow dries too. And they keep the mo bones and the marrow and the meat, you know, surface, they, they dry that. And then anytime they make soup, they throw that in. The meat cooks and hydrates and it's something they can eat, but the marrow and all the nutrients and the minerals and things from the bones go into there. And here, all of a sudden, without any refrigeration, you have, you've eaten the organs, you know, you've done something else with the skin, and you've preserved the rest of that animal in a very easy, accessible way to use for months or years. Wow. Now for a word from our sponsors. What are you doing with that X3 bar? What's your experience been so far? Yeah, it's, uh, it's been great so far. I've been using it quite a bit at home. It's saved me a couple trips to the gym. I've been mostly doing deadlifts with it. And I've actually brought it on a couple trips with me too. Because it's pretty easy to throw in, uh, into a rolling duffel and kind of bring with you on the road. Yeah, I mean, I found particularly the deadlift, um, you know, I've been a pretty decent deadlifter and, you know, I pulled over 700 pounds and I know when I use this big orange band, it, uh, it's pretty tough. It, it actually, for a band workout, it definitely simulates the heavy lifting. I think you're right. It's uh, very nicely suited for travel, for sure. It's a good, uh, certainly accessory exercise for many people. And I think a lot of people can use it as their primary uh, training tool, depending upon what their goals are. But I think the key I found is you've got to use it as designed, and that includes uh, really pushing to failure. And when you get there, you really know it. It definitely gets your heart rate up, even though 
even things like biceps curls. I find my heart rate jacked up after doing that. So I think I've been pretty impressed with the product overall uh, in certain situations for sure. Awesome. And uh, Dr. Jakish has a uh, poster that comes with it that gives you a kind of a breakdown of kind of the moves and different lifts that he addresses with it too. Head over to x3bar.com for products, videos, and training programs. Now back to the show. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's really cool. Uh, you know, I, some people talk about, you know, just Native Americans and pemmican, which some people say will last for even, even a decade or more, you know, for properly prepared. So this is a very long lasting food. You know, I've seen, you know, drying meat, freezing meats, even sticking it underwater as, as, as a means of preservation. Mm-hmm. Let me, let me go back to the, uh, the development of the, 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 the human infant. You know, it's something that uh, I've seen some studies based on, you know, projecting, Early, what a human diet needs to be to get the, the, the brain size that we have after weaning. And we look at, you know, native populations and, and what their weaning averages are. And somewhere it's around two, a little over two years is what, what, the, what, what sort of, and maybe you could see that in the population you visited, that they spend breastfeeding. And that's actually lower than, than some of the other primates like orangutans where they may spend up to eight years. And the reason people postulate that we're able to develop such a big brain size is a very nutrient dense diet that occurs, you know, immediately, you know, in and around weaning and after weaning. And that's how we did that. And so that shows you the value of uh, high energy, you know, fat based diets, quite, quite honestly, because if we look at other primates, I mean, these primates, uh, you know, I'd say the old world monkeys have been around for tens of millions of years eating a fruit based diet. And that just hasn't you know, it hasn't driven that brain development. Sure, we sure. talked about some of these other things, but you know, so the nutritional component is it, it seems like you need a concentrated source of calories and that generally comes from fat uh, more so than, than the protein. I mean, I think the protein, you know, when we're hunting animals, protein is a pretty easy resource. I mean, it's not hard to get your protein. And I would argue that we eat far too little protein these days in modern times and probably previously we probably ate protein more on the lines of 30% or something like that. And the rest of our caloric uh, consumption coming from fat would be, would be, but would be my three. Let me ask you about, so you're in with these primitive tribes in Peru and Bolivia and other parts of the world, which are very, very tropical environments. And so I would assume they would have plenty of access to plant calories, you know, fruits and things like that, that are widely abundant. And yet they still choose to consume animal products. I mean, you talk about some of these tribes in Bolivia, like I think, I'm not sure you pronounce it, maybe it's the Samane or something like that, where they, I mean, they still spend six hours a day hunting. So what is the thought on, you know, I mean, because there's, there's some people out there that say, well, no, humans are frugivores and we don't need meat. What do you see in the indig- indigenous tribes? That's a, that's a great question. So let me say one thing quick, because you started off with the, with the babies. Let me just say one quick thing about the babies. So yeah, the numbers, we, we think that people in the past were breastfeeding their young at least two years, maybe, maybe into three or a little bit more years. And when you think about the nutrition that's coming from raw mother's milk to their young, I mean, it, that's what it, it's dominated by fat. It's dominated by cholesterol. I mean, these are the things that we need for our, for our brains. And then the next thing that the kids eat. And, and I think any conversation about, food and diet and human environmental relationships and sustainability, all these things really, you can't just focus on one thing. You have to blow it all out of the water at the same time or else it doesn't make sense. If we're going to talk about food, diet, health, and use the past as sort of a a proxy for maybe how we should be eating today, then we also have to consider things like 
um, uh, pre-mastication, right? So, you know, weaning a baby off of milk, off of the mother's milk, at, whether it's six months, a year, two years, three years, whatever it is, wasn't then to beech nut jarred, you know, sterilized baby food. It was to, you know, the parents would take the food and chew it. And we still see this in indigenous groups around the world, chew the food and put it into their baby's mouth, which, which that's how you start to get on, on, on solid food. But you're also imparting incredible enzymes and, and, and all sorts of live things into that baby that needs it to then take that next stage of life. So we're missing that as well. But as far as um, uh, the, 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 uh, in some of the indigenous groups that I've been with and uh, their approach in plants, it's, it's interesting because like we said earlier, the, there's so much that has happened historically and prehistorically over the past hundreds or thousands of years that there is not a direct correlate to how they were always doing things in, into the past. And I will say a sort of a um, disclaimer, the reason that I wasn't with the group you mentioned in Bolivia or Peru. Um, and, the, 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 and so what I'm going to say is skewed in a different direction, but I want everybody to understand why. I went to Bolivia and Peru specifically to learn how people detoxify potatoes. Um, and let, let me say a couple words about that because I think it's very important to, to at least my take on all of this. Humans our human digestive tract, and many people are going to disagree with this, and, and, and you, you two might as well. But in my mind, you know, it, our human digestive tract millions of years ago was designed to eat a limited amount of plants, a li fruits, limited amount of vegetables, and some insects, and maybe some small critters. I mean, that's about what our diet consisted of before we created technology. What we've done, and this is the power of the human dietary past is, is in, in my mind, is in what I'm going to say now. What we have done beginning at three and a half million years ago with the, with the creation of the first stone tool, and then later things like fire and fermentation and hunting and curing and aging and coagulating, all the other things that we do, is we have created technologies and behaviors that have allowed us to overcome our physical limitations access more nutrients from our environment and transform those nutrients into something that our bodies can safely and efficiently do something with. That is in my mind what the human dietary past has been. So we create technologies to access more food. We create technologies to make food safe. We create technologies to make that food available to these incredibly inefficient digestive tracts that we have. That's powerful. So, and because we've done that, we've built bodies brains and bodies on a diet that we really biologically have no business eating, right? It, but, but it's strange for us to think about this because we're eating it and we're thriving on it. And it's be, not because we're necessarily designed for it. It's because we do things to our food before it even goes into our mouth. I mean, that's what humans do differently than, than most other animals. So, um, you know, I, I, in my mind, you can't separate, um, what we should be eating with how we should be doing something to that food before it goes into our mouths. Because even hunting, we have no business eating a megafauna with these bodies. Like I can't jump on a woolly mammoth and kill it and butcher it with my hands and my teeth. I don't have huge canines. I don't have the muscle. I don't have the power to do that. I created it. My ancestors created a technology to take that animal down and then take it apart. So it's true that meat and fat and organs are a lot more nutrient available to us than any plants are but we still use the technology to even access that resource. And that is what we've done over three and a half million years. So with that said, 
there are things in my mind that we have done to plants to allow them to do the same thing, become safe, nutrient-dense, and bioavailable. And I'm very, very interested in that. And, and it needs to be part of the conversation with uh, how we approach food today. So one of the things, and, and, and I love to look at that because even something as simple as a potato has um, strong implications for how we're eating today, even a wild potato. So potatoes are first domesticated. It looks like, allow me to just go off on this tangent for two seconds. I promise we'll bring it back. Uh, potatoes were domesticated about 10,000 years ago, we think. All wild potatoes are highly toxic. They, like, they'll, they'll kill you toxic. And many of the early domesticated varieties are that toxic as well. And over time, we've you know, made a whole bunch of different types of potatoes. We've diversified, and a lot of those are less toxic than others. But all of them have some level of toxin in them, right? Like alkaloids are, 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 are a major example, oxalates, some other, other things. So um, there are right now the uh, International uh, uh, Potato Institute in, in Lima has, is the seed bank for 4,000 different varieties of potatoes. And most of the areas that I was in, in Peru and, and in Bolivia, you know, these villages will still under domestication have like 600 in a single village under domestication still, which blows my mind. But they, I went down there because they still eat highly toxic potatoes amongst ones that aren't, but they still consume regularly highly toxic potatoes. And I wanted to see how they did it. And mostly I wanted to see what lessons I could take from that to bring back home and to feed my family and to teach my students and all this. So the one group I was with, I went specifically in Bolivia, because they engage in geophagy, which is the intentional consumption of earth or clays. And they do it specifically to detoxify these potatoes. So this is what they do. They, they, we built this, we had these potatoes and we cooked about 15 different varieties in, this, in, a, in an earthen oven we built out of, out of dirt really. And there's no trees, so it was all fueled with cow patties. And we, we, we roasted these potatoes. And then we brought these roasted potatoes over and they brought out two bowls of clay right? It was clay and water, two different types of clay. One was a little bit greener than the other. And we took the potatoes and they would rip them, rip them apart and dip them in the potatoes at every bite in the clay into your mouth, in the clay into your mouth, every single bite. And I'm like, how often do you do this? And I said, all the time. Like they, 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 they regularly eat these potatoes this way. And the idea is that the toxins in the potatoes will bind with the clay and pass safely through your body while at the same time you are benefiting from the nutritional value of these, of these potatoes. And they do it. And the coolest part was the youngest daughter in the family did to that clay what my daughter does with mayonnaise. Like when it was done and the potatoes were finished, it was still clay in a bowl and she picked it up and was like, she was <laughs> licking it. So it wasn't like this weird thing that they got past. It was something they were used to. And I ate more potatoes in the several weeks that I was in South America than I ever have in my whole life. And I even lived in Ireland for a year. We didn't touch this number of potatoes even in Ireland as we did. During, and every way the potatoes were prepared, no matter what it was, they were always peeled except for when we ate it with clay. And most of the toxins are in the peels, right? So this really speaks to the power of the clay to help detoxify the potatoes. So then we went or I went down to Peru, a completely different altitude, different potatoes, lots of toxins in these potatoes as well. And, but at a different altitude, um, they, they weren't doing the same thing. And what they were doing was they were fermenting the potatoes. They dig a 15 foot pit in the ground, fill it with potatoes. And I mean like 600 kilograms of potatoes, fill the pit with water and ferment them for a minimum of six months. The stuff that we had was two years in the ground we took out of the ground and ate. 
Um, and it was some, some powerful, powerful stuff. But that fermentation then um, actually deactivated the glycoalkaloids and they had some, and this is called tocash. And there was a couple other ways they did it. But the really cool thing was, and I know we're off on a tangent, I promise I'm bringing this back around. But the cool thing is that modern, we have dumbed down our domesticated plants to the point where they don't have, many of them don't have these high levels of toxins where we're thinking about it all the time when we're consuming plants. They certainly have issues. They have oxalates, they have lectins, they have things that are hurting us. But they're not, in, unfortunately, they're not in our conscious because we don't eat it and, and often feel a direct result right away. A lot of these things take time to build up, right? So we go to the grocery store, grab a potato, grab a pepper, grab an eggplant, grab a whatever, and just think what we're eating is perfectly safe. The problem is these potatoes still have toxins in them. So the, the, one of the cool things is, and we're doing it now, is we're making um, at the food lab, we're taking a lesson here and we're making what we call lacto fries. So we're fermenting the potatoes in a, in a brine for about five, cut them into fries, ferment them for about five, uh, five days. And then we make French fries. We, we fry them in lard or tallow and we're creating a French fry that, you know, is a completely different food than a French fry that most other people have eaten. They've been detoxified. They don't have the sugars in them to then, you know, hit the high heat and create cancer causing compounds. They taste absolutely incredible and they're a completely different food. So that's why I went, I say that because that's why I went to South America. I wasn't with the hunter gatherer group. Bill, let me, let me ask you, because there's, there's people that will say that, uh, you know, what drove brain growth, you know, for humans, you know, maybe we'll say it happened 400,000 years ago, was access to heat and starch. Uh, and, and this would be things like potatoes and other underground storage organisms, roots, tubers, and whatever. But when you look at some of the wild tubers, uh, and maybe you've had access to them, they, they tend to be uh, very fibrous. They tend to not have as much caloric value uh i mean i would assume and maybe you can correct me on this if i'm wrong but uh and and then you what you talk about it, it does require an incredible amount of processing and safeguarding to to, to actually access those, those calories safely and so do you how much credence do you put in, in into the belief that you know the brain size was grown by cooking you know cooking potatoes four million years four four hundred thousand years ago or so no i don't, I don't think i don't think that fueled any brain growth at all um i i do think that the two main things that fueled our brain growth was that we were hunting and that we were cooking the, those two things alone the, that those are the biggest two factors in my mind in fact many people believe that the introduction of these underground storage organs into our ancient diets happened way before two million years ago that actually also the pithecines found ways to access um these these underground storage organs and if that's the case it didn't do anything for our brain growth because you don't see even, even the jump from osteopithecines to homo habilis is not a significant brain jump size. So you have million, if it's true that they're accessing underground storage organs, roots, corms, tubers, whatever, um, you know, several million years ago, you don't, we don't see it impact body size or brain size significantly. Hey, Bill, um, I'm going to ask a question. I think a lot of our listeners are, are wondering because the, the, the archeological community just has, kind of this, this knowledge of what we've eaten and how that's kind of evolved over time. So what do you eat on a daily <laughs> basis? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. So my, so what I've eaten has changed. It, it changes all the time to some degree, the more that I learn and the more that you know what I'm focusing on doing. So in the, over the past 16 years, so really my trajectory has been this. I, I grew up sort of a short, not short, but well, still short, uh, sort of a pudgy, awkward kid for 
most of my middle school years. Um, and I, I had a very unhealthy relationship with food then, you know, food to me was something that didn't, didn't nourish me. It was something that made me look ugly and the kids made fun of me about. Right. And then um, in high school, I found sports. I started wrestling. I become very interested in, in um, not only, you know, my body shape for, you know, cosmetic reasons, but also for performance reasons. And I went to nutritionists and I had doctors and they were all telling me, you know, what to eat that we now know was not correct, but I was focused on wrestling. So I went from one unhealthy relationship with food to a completely different unhealthy relationship with food. I looked better. I was performing well. I didn't feel right, but um, things are going well. I wrestled for Ohio State um, Division One, incredible Division One program, but still, you know, I was, I was in what looked like great physical shape. I was doing very well with sports, but I, it still just didn't feel right. And then, you know, staying on that same diet, but after I left wrestling, all of a sudden I started to balloon up again. Right. And, and, and it felt terrible and probably the worst shape of my life, uh, worst health, physical shape of my life was, you know, right after college. And I, I remember I was in such bad shape that if my wife and I would go out to eat at a restaurant, I would look on the way to the restaurant to identify all the places that I could stop and go to the bathroom on the way home. Like, cause I would lose dinner on the way home. Right. Um, Right now, I'm 46 years old, and I'm in the best, best shape of my life. I am in much better shape now than I was when I was wrestling in a Division One program. So this is what I eat. I eat a lot of high-quality animal protein, a lot of high-quality animal fat, a lot of high-quality animal organs. So, I mean, we, we truly do a complete nose-to-tail in this house. Meat is not allowed in our house unless we've either killed it and butchered it ourselves or know the person who's raised or butchered the animal. I mean, that's... I, I, on, for an ethical level and for a nutritional level, that's that. Grains in our house. So I'm sorry, beyond that, my, my approach is this. I believe that our ancestors did an incredible job at creating technologies and behaviors to make the most of the resources in front of them. So beyond the, the animal part of this, and actually including it, my approach is not so much what I'm eating, but how I'm eating it, what I'm doing to that food before it goes into my mouth. Because if I'm not maximizing the nutrition coming out of that food, I have no, I have no desire to eat it. So, you know, if we're eating maize or corn, for example, um, we will eat maize only if it's nixtamalized the way that it's been done for thousands of years. And, you know, in the nixtamal and make masa. And if, if, if it's a grain, it's a long, slow fermented sourdough bread. And that's the only way it's in there. If it's dairy, it's fermented, you know, fermented raw dairy in our house. So if it's vegetables, we rarely eat cooked vegetables. We rarely eat raw vegetables, but we do eat a, a decent amount of fermented vegetables. Maybe let me, let me ask you on dairy. Cause a lot of people that, that uh, I interact with are, are, you know, kind of have a love hate relationship with dairy. They love it, but for some, for some reason it doesn't love them back. Um, what, what do these primitive cultures, the ones that do consume dairy, I know you said you spent up time up, up in Mongolia. And so, I mean, certainly, uh, we know that they, you know, they get dairy from yak and, and other animals. How, how is dairy handled, uh, indigenously? That is a great question. You know, we, we, I hope we have a couple more hours to talk about dairy because I love talking about dairy. So to set the stage as, as most of your listeners know, human Human adults are the only species on the planet that drink dairy from other animals, right? However, we have an issue that most, more than half human adults experience some level of 
lactose intolerance. We, we, we our, our production of the enzyme lactase to break down the sugars is either suppressed or goes away as we become adults. So a lot of people will then say, well, that right there is evidence that we shouldn't be drinking dairy. Now, that's a ridiculous argument. Now, I'm not saying we, I'm not using that alone to, to say whether or not we should be consuming dairy. We'll talk about that in a second. But the argument that we can't handle dairy as adults means that we shouldn't drink dairy is absolutely ridiculous because if that's the, if that's the argument, then we definitely shouldn't be consuming grains. We definitely shouldn't be eating animals. We require technologies to access and process the nutrients from these, from these other, and from these other resources before we can do anything with it. And why is dairy any different? We just need to do something to it the right way. And our ancestors and, and traditional people around the world have figured it out. So let's, let's go, let's go there for just a second. One of the issues with having these conversations is that, you know, we have these food categories that are meaningless. We say things like, I get asked all the time, should we drink dairy? Or should we eat bread as, should we eat bread as humans? And, you know, that category bread can go anywhere from a long, slow fermented sourdough loaf to a, a, a loaf of Wonder Bread. And they're completely different foods and our bodies do completely different things with them. Dairy is the same thing. You know, a raw fermented dairy food is a different food than, you know, um, you know, ultra pasteurized chocolate milk, skim milk or something, right? Um, and most of the time when we do something to our food as humans before we eat it, we are intentionally or unintentionally taking lessons from other animals. Like um, a cow can go out on the, on the grass and support their huge bodies on grass because they have a fermentation chamber called a rumen in their stomachs and they, and they can break it down that way. Well, we don't have a rumen but we can very successfully take vegetables and ferment them outside of our bodies in a crock or in a jar, right? Um, we can do things to grains the way that animals that are designed to eat grains like ducks do naturally in their bodies. Um, and that's a whole other conversation. But with dairy, the cool thing that we figured out is not to mimic other animals. The best way to consume dairy is to mimic what our babies do naturally. So babies, when they drink milk from their mothers, they drink the milk and it goes into their stomach and they produce several enzymes that many adult humans don't produce. One of them is lactase, right? To break down the sugars lactose, but the other is chymosin. And chymosin is there for a very important purpose. A baby drinking milk, the best way to, it will not derive all the nutritional value from that milk if it stays a liquid it'll go through their digestive tract way too quickly for them to fully break it down and for them to fully get all the nutrients from it. So what we have all mammals do is they create an enzyme that when the milk goes into their stomach, it curdles, it produces curds. And because of this, it, it turns into like a cottage cheese, jello-ish sort of structure that slows it down and it sits there and it ferments and we can mechanically and physically, mechanically and chemically break it down and do its components. And then it stays a little bit longer in the small intestines and the nutrients get absorbed. They literally make cheese in their stomach. So when a baby spits up on you and it looks like cottage cheese, but it smells like provolone, it's because they've made cheese in their stomach. All animals do this, right? And the provolone smell is actually from the enzyme lipase, which is strong. But um, so let's break this down. We as huge, so in my mind, when I think about what is like an incredibly nutrient dense food, the kind of foods that have what we need to support us, well, where else can you go but the things that we've, that nature has designed to support new life? An egg is an incredible example, right? What things are in eggs that can help us amazing things, especially in the yolks? 
Well, what about milk? Milk is there to support new life for all species of mammals. Can we do something to that milk to derive the maximum amount of nutrition? Yes. And at the same time, the cool thing is we derive a hell of a lot of pleasure out of it as well. So we mimic this. The, the enzyme chymosin is also known as rennet. So we can do what we do as humans and process that resource outside of our bodies and then consume it. And we're mimicking what happens in other animals. So um, we take the, the, the raw and raw dairy has all of the bacteria needed in it to produce almost any cheese on the planet. All you need to add is rennet and salt and then put it in different environments. That's all. Um, so we take that raw dairy, we ferment it, we coagulate it, we age it, whatever, and then we consume it and we derive a hell of a lot more nutrition and pleasure out of it than drinking milk. The only two groups in the world that I've ever seen, indigenous groups, traditional groups, seen drink milk are the Samburo and the Maasai. And they're mixing it with blood that they've taken right out of the necks of the cows, right? And it's always raw. And that's one of the reasons they do that is because they're always on the move. I mean, these are nomadic pastoralists that are not sitting there with huge pots of things fermenting and aging. They're literally on the move, but it's a completely raw product. So in, a, in, in terms of lactose and, or lactose intolerance and lactase, which is the argument that most people use, including anthropologists, which drive me nuts to say that we shouldn't be drinking dairy. Well, let's think about it. Raw milk has lactase in it. It has some of that enzyme already in it. When we pasteurize it, we kill that off, right? So we've, we've done that. The other thing is that in almost every case, dairy is fermented before it's consumed. And when we ferment it, we're using lactobacillus bacteria to do the fermentation. And it eats the lactose, produces lactic acid, the pH drops, it becomes safer. But the cool thing is by the time you're done fermenting it, there's less lactose or in some cases no lactose left so the lactose intolerance argument only applies to the way we consume milk today in a modern western world it doesn't apply to these other cases because it's not an issue even if humans weren't producing a ton of lact lactase they still do fine on fermented dairy products because um uh because there's either no or, or very little lactose left in the final product and i just talked to somebody the other day who's a food uh, um, a food scientist, and he is actually lactose intolerant, does absolutely fine on fermented dairy. And it's even, and it's the first time I ever heard this, but he suggested, he says for him, the lactobacillus bacteria in the fermented dairy products are so powerful that not only can he consume fermented dairy safely, but when he has it, put it in his body, there's a period of time where then he can then consume unfermented dairy hmm. and the lactobacillus bacteria help in his gut and he doesn't have an issue which is fantastic, but they're two different arguments. I mean, again, I love the point that you, you know, say, you know, we, we group these foods in two broader categories because there's so many different, you know, like you talk about bread and dairy and, and so on and so forth and yogurt and kefir and you know, all these different uh, cheeses and, and things like that. Let me ask you another question. Uh, as you spend time with these indigenous tribes, one of the thoughts is that, you know, it has to do around salt. You know, where do we get our salt from? Where do we get our salt from? Did, you know, modern meat is basically hung, blood is drained out of it. There's, there's blood, there's salt and blood. I mean, blood is basically isoosmotic, isoosmotic with seawater. Do you, do you find any sort of, what do you, how do they deal with salt? Or, or is that something you've, you, you've seen observed much? I haven't observed much, but because I'll tell you again, this is a, a, a modern, one of the modern differences. Well, I'll say this they seek salt out. 
no, every group I've been with has sought salt out. The difference is that it's one of the few things that are brought in from the outside world, right? So I, I, I can't speak directly to where they're getting it from nature because they're actually going and, you know, it's one of the things they will go to town and find a way for somebody to bring to them or, or, or whatever. It's one of the very few things many, in many cases, um, but it is an, an important part of their diet. It's an important part of their diet for food preservation, but it's an important part of their diet just in general as well. But I can't speak to it in a very prehistoric sense um, because the, what they're doing now is they're getting salt in, in a different way. But it is important for sure. This is another thing, you know, and I guess this is more just a general philosophy thing is, you know, we have a lot of people and myself included, Zach, we exercise for mm -hmm. the heck of it, basically. <laughs> you know, and I just, you know, you kind of see, you see these cartoons of animals looking at humans running and going, what the hell are you running from? You know, <laughs> who's chasing you? What food are you trying to get? And so what do you, how do, uh, I mean, what is the primitive life? Uh, is it so activity intense that they never they never consider or think about exercising i mean how does that sort of fit into their their day-to-day -day existence yeah I, I i've never been in you know in one of these communities where there's this need for them to exercise beyond what they just do for daily living but at the same time they're not you know working as hard as we in some ways as hard as we do. They're not working the same hours and they're not, you know, sitting there laboring, you know, you know, in a field or any, they're, you know, they're moving all the time. And one of the cool things, and we see this in the archeological record too, one of the ways we can look at a skeleton and see the difference between a hunter gatherer and a farmer is because a farmer has what we call bilateral asymmetry, right? The, the skeleton looks different on one half than it does on the other half. You know, the hunter gatherer, both sides, the shoulders, the arms, the joint, all of it looks the same on both sides because, you know, they're moving their whole body all the time. These very fluid, natural motions. But a farmer's sitting there, you know, doing the same motion over time, day after day after day, and it's causing, you know, deterioration in one spot where it's not on the other. So, you know, I, I want the picture that I'd like to paint is that, you know, these groups that I've been with, people are moving, people are happy, they're smiling. Uh, when they rest, man, they rest. You know, the cool thing is, you know, when they go to bed, they go to bed and they sleep a full night and they get up and they hit it and kill it the next day, right? And they do a great job. But um, there's no need to go get a gym membership. There's no need to go run 400 miles. You know, they're, they're moving enough on their own. You know, and they're not sitting, they're not going to win a bodybuilding contest, but they are, you know, good looking, you know, people. In fact, and, and this is really interesting. The, as far as group I've been around, I spent time with the Samburo in Kenya uh, two years ago. I brought my family up there. I was in Kenya looking, in Western Kenya, looking at a, a fermented dairy product called, um, in, in West Bokat called Mersic, which is a, 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 an ash yogurt, they call it. And it's one of these things that they suggest that is the, is the food, you know, we, we love to pin things on one food. So we say, you know, people say Kenyans are amazing marathon runners because they drink this ash yogurt, which is ridiculous. But I wanted <laughs> to see how the ash yogurt was made and experiencing all this. And that was great. But then we went up and, and spent time with the, the Samburo warriors who um, drink the, uh, you know, drink blood on a, on a regular basis from, from their cattle. So we went and it, and it took a long time to get there. I mean, we, you know, plane rides and then we're in cars for two days. And, you know, then we left a road 
we left, uh, it wasn't even a road, it was like a path in the woods and, and ended up getting, and we, and we couldn't go any further. We had to go on this dried riverbed and we drove for like another hour and then we got to the group we wanted, to, we were going to be with. And uh, these three young, late teens, early 20, Sunboro Warriors met us. And I just remember looking at them and thinking to myself, these are the healthiest human beings I've ever seen in my life. I mean, they were lean, but not in a starving way. They were lean bright teeth, broad smiles, broad faces, and their eyes were just perfectly white. The whites of their eyes were like perfectly white, huge smiles, and just the way that they moved, everything about them to me just, you know, spoke of healthy. And we followed them, and we went to their village, and we did the whole thing, right? We got the cow, we tapped the net, shot it with the arrow, the blood's coming out, we take it, and they um, stirred it to get, you know, the coagulated, took that out, and they dumped raw milk in it. They mix it about half and half raw milk and blood. And then we're sitting there drinking it, which by the way, was fabulous. I mean, it was, it's tasted like a, a salty, irony chocolate milkshake. Um, and then we're talking for a while through an interpreter. And I'm like, okay, how often do you really drink this? And they're like twice a day. And I'm like, like for real, like if we weren't here and they said twice a day, he says, you know, the dry season, the men leave with the animals and it's so dry and the food for the animals, the forage is so poor that these animals have to move and continuously eat for the entire dry season. So when that happens, the men actually get up with nothing but a spear and a knife and follow these animals and they're gone for six months. And when they're gone, the only food that they eat is blood and milk twice a day. That's it. So, and I, and I come from Maryland and, and raw milk is, Ill, highly illegal in Maryland, right? And blood is very, very, it's legal, but it's very difficult to get. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm out here trying to, to, to trace down like, you know, the perfect human diet and food and approach. And I'm looking at the healthiest people I have ever seen in my life. And the two things that they eat every single day are illegal and almost impossible for me to get at home. How can we even begin to have this conversation? Like, seriously, we, we're, not, we're not going far enough. And man, it, it was fantastic. They were the healthiest people I've ever seen. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I was in uh, uh, Tanzania, you know, several years back and I ran into, you know, I visited with some of the Maasai and they offered me basically that same, you know, I kept it in a little yeah. leather pouch and I, I, I just declined because it just, you know, I just, before I knew any of this stuff, I was like, man, that just, that just doesn't look good to me. So I, so I, did, I declined. They were going to, they were going to give me a wife too. They were, they, you know, I said, oh, I've, I've got a wife. I don't need another one, but it was, it was kind of interesting. But yeah, I mean that they are, I mean, I was going to ask you, uh, you know, in your travels with all these different indigenous tribes, who you felt was the most physically impressive specimens. And it sounds like you just named that group. That was it for sure. So are you, you know, and, and again, obviously I am hugely biased. I think animal products play a huge role in nutritional uh, health in, in the population. Are you seeing, you know, even in, among the indigenous tribes, ones that preference animal foods have any sort of advantage over ones that may be a higher plant, plant uh, proportion of foods? Sure. I, I, I do think, I do think that I want to make sure I say this right. So the group's, these traditional groups that I have spent time with, the way that they're dealing with plants is the best way they could be dealing with plants, right? They are doing, they are approaching these plants and doing things to these plants to make them again, the safest and, and most bioavailable as possible. And that 
I think there's a lot we can learn from that. But at the same time, even those groups value highly value animal foods and animal resources. When I, I remember when, even in Bolivia, the one person came to visit and brought fish from Lake Titicaca, which wasn't terribly far away. And I mean, the place went nuts. The entire family was so excited. And I'm, I have never seen so much of a fish eaten in, in, in one thing and they eat all parts of it. And um, they were so excited. So the, I think the groups that are really plant-based today are not entirely plant-based always by choice, right? They're by, it's by circumstance. And then within that circumstance, they figured out incredible ways to do whatever they can with the plants. So yeah, the, the animal resources are, are, uh, are highly valued in all cases. And the groups that are, have access to them are doing really, really well. And, and Mongolia is another great example. They, they do a ton of stuff with dairy. I mean, they do more stuff with dairy than anybody I've ever seen. But when they, I was uh, there when we butchered a yak and it was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And actually the way they butchered this yak, you know, I love to see butchering practices around the world because it's a great window into culture, what they value from the animal, taboos, religion, nutrition, all of it. So, you know, they killed this yak with a sledgehammer, dropped it to its knees and rolled it over. And, and a yak has a really curved back. So they put these two logs on either side. So, you know, the belly was up and his arms were up like this. And there were three guys working uh, and neighbors came to help. And the neighbors were like 30 miles away, right? So it's not, it, it was like a big deal. So they came um, and it was, it was like 40 degrees below zero. It was incredibly cold. And they worked, but no matter the cold, they were uh, um, meticulous and slow. And I, I remember thinking they were like surgeons that have worked together as a team forever. So they, they started out uh, very typical as you would with an animal. And they, they cut up the belly and down the legs a little bit. And they peeled the skin open. And what typically would then be a cut from like the anus up to the rib cage, like grab the guts and bring them out, uh, which is what's typical in North America where we value the meat, but not necessarily the innards so much. What they did was completely different. They had this wide open, it looked like an autopsy. And then they cut the rib cage like this all the way around and pulled the rib cage off like a shield, right? And put it over here. And they had access to everything right at that moment. And they put a tarp underneath the bottom of the legs and they took, you know, cut, cut the esophagus and, and pulled everything out really carefully onto this tarp. Right. And then the wife comes over and she was so excited. So she, she took the spleen and the gallbladder and, and gave that to the dogs, but everything else was eaten. And she took the intestines and the stomach out and she was cleaning it out because they make butter in the yak stomach and they use the sausages, casings and all this. And she had her little place to do that. But as soon as the guts came out, these guys put their knives down and picked up axes. And there was this, this team that worked together like surgeons then looked like it was like a frat party. Like they went to town and chopped everything up. There were no cuts of meat. There were no fat over here and gristle over here. Everything got chopped up into like fist sized pieces and you had no idea where it came from. And every meal that we ate was a combination of bones, marrow, gristle, and fat and almost the same proportion every single time. It was fascinating to see. Now they valued the meat, but they didn't value certain cuts over others. And it was, it was, it was obvious when you saw them, saw them approach this. It was, it was fascinating. It's like the ultimate ground beef. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was quite something. And the food was, you know, gray. I mean, it was always like this gray, you know, the meat came out and it was cooked with everything. It looks, it looked like what you get when you're making bone broth and you pull the bones out. 
But if you had just cooked that hunk is, is, is what the plates of, of food, even in restaurants there. Even yeah, in- you know, and it is, it is interesting when you go back to what you were talking about when you talk about the differences in the tribes where you get the ones that are more plant-based, the ones that are more meat-based or animal product-based is like the, the preparation required to kind of get the animals where you want to get them. Like you might do a, quite a bit of work at first, but then you have just loads and loads of nutrition for days and days and days. Whereas with the plants, it seems like you kind of have to like continually be doing a lot of work and it's almost translates similar to like modern day you know, meat based eaters or animal product based eaters versus vegans. Like all the vegans that I've known that, you know, I, I, I trust enough to know, think that they're, they're strict vegans. Mm-hmm. They spend a ton of time preparing and sure. like getting this stuff. Whereas, you know, the opposite, Sean, what do you spend like five to 10 minutes a day preparing your food? Uh, well, I mean, no, granted the process isn't hard and you know, it's, it's however long it takes me to, to, to burn a piece of meat, you know? You yeah. Know, yeah. So, I mean, if, if you, if, if you would back up and say you don't have access to a grocery store, you'd spend a, a decent amount of time getting that animal. Once you got it, you'd have all that nutrients and very little prep time following it. Mm. It's just, it's interesting to think of that stuff. It, it's a lot of work up front for sure. Now mm-hmm. I will say, you know, there's no, and again, this is, this is my opinion. And, and this is how I choose to feed myself and my family. But when I think about the past, animals, animal protein, animal fat, animal organs, animal blood is a huge priority across the board. Vegetables were in our diets in the past. I'm confident that they were. But they were always processed in some form, again, to make them safe and to make those nutrients available to our bodies. And, you know, this just going out and thinking we're putting vegetables on a plate and doing ourselves good. Well, sometimes we're doing ourselves harm. Now, I choose to feed myself and my family vegetables along with, with, with animals and animal parts, but we're always doing something to it. And that's the part that I think we're missing. In fact, you know, a lot of, of, of conversations about diet and sustainability are, are about what's happening in the field or in the stalls where the food is being raised or, or heart, you know, and, and, and then we're spending a ton of time talking about, you know, what foods we're choosing to eat. But the area in between, which is the area that, that I'm really focused on, is not often part of the conversation. What is happening from when it comes out of the field, out of the stalls, out of the woods, out of the stream, whatever, before it goes into our mouths? And that is really where I think um, the power of the human approach to our dietary past lies because humans, no matter where they were in the world, completely different resources found ways to access the nutrients in those resources. And some of it was with the way that they butchered animals. Some of it was the way they fermented vegetables. Some of it was the way they cooked things or sliced things or diced things, whatever, but we're not spending enough time talking about that. And for as much as when you can go to a sort of, um, uh, animal-based diet or, or some of these other approaches and, and not have to count calories anymore, or worry about other things. It kind of just all falls into place. Well, it does with this approach too. You know, my approach is no matter what environment I find myself in, whether it's the middle of the woods or in a restaurant or in a grocery store or at a birthday party or a party at the college or whatever, I look, I consider myself like a modern hunter gatherer and I'm in an environment. I say, okay, what can I do? What things can I choose knowing how they're prepared to get the most amount of nutrients with the least amount of work? And, you know, and if I do that, no matter where I am, 
it's a guilt-free approach, right? And it, it, it works itself out. And I think that's fantastic. The only problem, well, that, that, that's what the approach is. Yeah, that, that's contrasted to the sort of the, you know, the general modern food system, which is basically preserving it for shelf life. I mean, that, right. we've taken away, you know, nutrition for shelf life, you know, uh, viability. Let me ask you about, you know, could, spending time again, because I think it's so fascinating with all these different indigenous tribes. And, you know, I've, I've seen accounts of like Inuit who, you know, they still hunt whale. They, they have an annual whale hunt sometimes because they're still allowed to do that. And I, I saw one where the oldest member of the whale hunt was 93 years of age. And so we see these people, even old age, still being very functional uh, sure. people. And I, I know at the beginning you talked about, you know, you want to live and then drop dead. What are you seeing with these indigenous tribes? Are you seeing these, the older folks becoming marginalized? Or are they still a vital part of the community? That, you know, that is an excellent question. And I don't have a lot of experience there because in, in the groups that I went into, depending on how much time I had, we usually, I usually gravitated towards, you know, the, the, the 20 year old, 30 year old, the 40 year olds who would take me hunting or would take me foraging or would take me doing this. So, I mean, there were, I remember seeing significant age in the, in many of these groups, um, but I wasn't around them a whole lot because of just because of what I was doing with them. Um, but I do. And again, a lot of this, and I have to be completely, completely honest and transparent here. It's not, and these indigenous groups and traditional groups that I, I spend time with, I'm usually going in to learn a particular thing, how to detoxify potatoes, how to butcher a yak or whatever. But in almost every case, unfortunately, modern Western food and approaches to diet have, have permeated. Um, and I'll give you a great example and, I, and don't think less of me for this, but I'm going to tell you I'm completely transparent. So when I went to the group uh, in Bolivia that I spent time with, you know, I'm going there to learn specifically about how to detoxify potatoes. I landed in La Paz. Um, I had terrible altitude sickness, but I spent the night in La Paz and I was picked up and we're driving out of the city towards um the community or the 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 family we're going to be with and it was a several hour drive but um right when we left the city limits the driver pulled over and they're like we got to bring the gifts to the family i'm like oh yeah, of course whatever you need and it's so what what did they ask for they said they asked for a kilo of coca leaves um a bag of bread a particular kind of bread and uh several big things of fanta orange fanta and I said, well, I, I'll buy the coca leaves, but I'm, I, let me just give them the money. I'm not bringing them. The, I, I'm, I, I can't in good, in good conscience bring this stuff that I would never allow in my house or feed my children and bring to this family that I'm trying to go learn from. And they're like, that's what they asked for. You got to bring it. I'm like, no. And we, we didn't get in an argument, but almost. And they said, listen, this is what they asked for. You have got to bring it. And you have to be kind of, you know, culturally sensitive to, you know, all sorts of things. And I said, fine. And I bought it. And I brought it and it killed me, but they were so, I was so happy to learn how to detox about potatoes and they were so happy to get orange Fanta. And it's, it's, it's very similar. There was very little places that, you know, when I did the show for Nat Geo, we were all over the world and we were in the middle of Oman in the desert in Oman and we were in Tanzania and we were all over, no matter, everywhere. Do you know what food was in every place that I went? Snickers. I had no idea that Snickers like literally has taken over the world and it killed me. So, um, you know, some of these, when we start talking about some of the elderly and those kinds of things and health and diet and this, um, I do think we do have to realize that we've had a lot of this permeation of, of, 
our modern foods from the West into it, but not with the Sumburo, at least when I was there. That, 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 that group that I said just looked gorgeous um, was, I, I saw nothing there but the foods that, you know, they were dealing with. Yeah, I think that's a great, uh, great sort of thing to end with. Bill, it's been a pleasure, man. I'll tell you what, this has been just fascinating. I'm sure our listeners are going to really appreciate it. Um, what do you have coming up? Uh, I know, I know, I participated in 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 something you've got coming. Can you tell us a little bit about that, and then some sure. of the other things you got going on? So I got a couple things going on. Uh, actually, yesterday, um, I don't know when this is going to air, but yesterday, which was what the nineteenth of um, of September, uh, Curiosity Stream, which is a streaming uh, content network, kind of like Netflix, just launched a a new program. Uh, called Bright Now. It's a Bright Now series. And they did a show on, on me and my family called the, the Modern Stone Age Family. So you can get that on Curiosity Stream. Um, it's a short piece, but the hopes are that this, um, so please check it out. I think, I think you'd love it. It talks a lot about my research, a lot of work I've, did, I've done with uh, traditional groups, and, and most importantly, how you can translate that information into your modern kitchen. Um, and our hopes are that we can convert this into an entire series, because I think the information is incredibly important. Um, also, and, and what you and I'm thrilled you were on, you, you're participating in, uh, we're doing a summit called the Modern Stone Age Summit, and it's uh, airing in October, and you can find information on that at www.themodernstoneagediet.com. Um, and if you're interested in any of the work that I'm doing, you can find information on my website at drbillschindler.com. And another place that you might look for uh, some really cool information is I've, I just launched last year at the, at the Washington College where I work, the Eastern Shore Food Lab. And our focus at the Eastern Shore Food Lab is to connect people with food, um, uh, with food, period. And through that connection, connect them with their past, their health, their environment, their community, and themselves. And that's uh, at Washington College. So if you look up Washington College uh, and, and search for the Eastern Shore Food Lab, you can find information there. We're doing research, we're teaching classes, we're doing theme meals, a whole bunch of stuff. And then finally, um, hopefully within the next six months, uh, uh, my book will be out uh, right now. The title is How to Eat Like Humans. So uh, hopefully you can, uh, you'll see that on the shelves pretty soon. Yeah, we're looking forward to that one. That'll be good. Zach, anything else? No, I think that was it. But this has been a incredibly interesting and thought-provoking podcast. So I'm looking forward to getting this one up. And I think our our listeners will be thrilled to have heard this, this episode. Hey, Bill, I want to just, sorry to, sorry to prolong this, but I, I just wonder, is there anything like in the anthropologic world, like a, a something, a precipice of something that we're looking at that may change things, you know, anything upcoming or any kind of debates or controversies you think are going to be involved in the next few years? You know, I, I'm going to answer this kind of a, a back end roundabout sort of way, but it, it's an important way. So not one thing, except what I love to see is that um, our, our climate sort of the, the context within which we're operating now is, is such an exciting one. You know, people like you, for example, who are getting information out about a sort of a carnivore approach and, and, and expanding our minds and doing podcasts like this, it's doing more than, than you can imagine because what it's also doing is changing the landscape within which the research is taking place and the public publishing on that research is happening. So, uh, for example, I did, I did work uh, 10 years ago. On a, 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 I paired with a colleague of mine who's a biologist, and we took uh, white-tailed deer and 
it was, it, we were answering an archeological question, but it has a lot of ramifications for today. We took 13 deer, weighed them and took them. We had help of a student, took every one of those deer completely apart. We took every bit of marrow out of every single bone. We boiled all the bone grease out of the bones. We weighed the blood, we weighed the organs, we weighed the brain, the eyeballs, the, the testicle, all of it, and figured out all the caloric representations for every part of that animal. And then we took away from that equation um, the food that most modern hunters typically keep. And we just took the caloric value of the stuff that's usually discarded. And what we found out was that that part that is usually discarded uh, equates to, depending on your caloric intake, between 13 and 31 calories, days worth of calories. 13 to 31 calories worth of food is not considered food by most of you know, the modern Western world. And uh, huge ramifications. But well, we went to get it published and they were like, you're out of your mind. That's not food. Like we're talking about fat. <laughs> so so um, for, for peer review, right? So now we're going to resubmit it because that, you know, we have a different landscape now. We can do things. We're thinking about food in a different way. So to answer your question, it's much more sort of esoteric. But, you know, because of the work that you and the community are doing, is changing the landscape that better research can happen and better publications can happen. So I look forward to seeing what happens in the future. Yeah, yeah that's great. Bill. I, I mean, I, I would argue that a lot of these questions that we can now ask, you know, have never been answered. I mean, we've made assumptions about, you know, particularly when it comes to nutrition and even, even a lot of, a lot of our stuff around medicine. Uh, we just kind of make these assumptions have never really truly challenged them. And it's, it's, it's refreshing to see, more people opening up and saying, hey, what, what if this is not really true? And let's, let's actually test this theory instead of just sort of, you know, kind of believing it because we're told that's the case. So, so good stuff. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much. It was truly a pleasure. Um, I'm so thank you for being on my summit. And I can't wait for that to launch. People are going to love that. It's full of great information. And uh, let me know if there's anything else I can do to help. Awesome, Bill. Thanks a bunch for coming on. And we'll let you know when this one goes up. Okay, please do. Um, and can you, if I give you sort of the social media pieces, can you put those? Oh on yeah, go, go ahead and say them right now and then uh, we'll put them on the show notes as well. Awesome. So uh, you follow, follow me and my family on, um, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at, at Dr. Bill Schindler for me. And the family is at the Modern Stone Age family. And the same thing for, for websites, drbillschindler.com and the Modern Stone Age family.com. Perfect. I know I look forward to following those and, and learning more about proper food preparation. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. It was truly a pleasure. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.